Please help me welcome J. Lauren Norris. I nearly cut the pilot's legs off. I did. Now, there were some instructions that were, I don't know, probably buried in a manual that I hadn't read yet or had read and already forgotten because they didn't mean anything to me. But that day, I learned lessons that I will never forget. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode of Leading Leaders. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast. I remember the tones going off in the station. It was a, we knew it was a drill because they told us it was a drill, but the tones and then the instructions, the instructions said aircraft on runway X with a pilot over G, which usually means they are in need of medical attention and most likely going to be unconscious. So we rolled up to the scenes with those instructions. We rolled up on the aircraft, positioned ourselves properly in the in the fire apparatus so that we could protect ourselves from hot breaks or gunfire or whatever. And then we climbed up on the canopy of this aircraft. We opened the top. My cohort grabbed the first seat pilot and I grabbed the second seat pilot. Now he was well over six foot tall, probably at the time outweighed me by 20, 25 pounds. But I unbuckled him from his five-point harness. He was pretending to be completely unconscious, completely limp, uncooperative, unhelpful, just there. I grabbed him by his straps and I lifted him out of the seat and I turned him sideways to hand him to the guys on the ground. And just as his torso kind of broke the, the plane, if you will, of the edge of the, the canopy where he's more floating in the air, waiting to be lifted down, that he is sitting in the cockpit, the canopy began to close. And so I put my hands up to stop it while they got him off of there. Well, I can't hold the canopy up and lift his buttocks up over the edge of the aircraft. And the longer I try to press against it, the more it comes against me. And now the other firefighter is pressing against it as well. Now other people are climbing up and we're all trying to hold this canopy up and it isn't working. We're failing at stopping the canopy. Meanwhile, the guy on the ground is still trying to get the pilot out and his body isn't coming and the pilot isn't helping. He hasn't reacted to anything yet. I don't know why he wasn't freaking out yet because I really thought that canopy was going to come down and chop his legs off like a butter knife. And out of the corner of the scene comes walking our fire chief, cigarette still in hand, climbs out of his truck, walks the distance over to the aircraft, looks us all in the eyes like we've lost our marbles, opens a little door on the side of the aircraft and unscrews the quick disconnect on the battery. As soon as he unscrewed the quick disconnect, the canopy stopped right where it was. And then he kind of giggled and he said, you know, it wouldn't matter if there was 20 of you young bucks up there trying to hold that canopy back. It has a close sequence in its hydraulics that says even if that plane is flying at 200 miles an hour, that canopy can force itself to close. And the harder you push back, the harder it pushes forward and you'll never outmuscle its hydraulics. Kind of giggled himself and he went right back to his fire truck and continued what he was doing. And the rest of it just kind of looked at each other. Now, if I'm, if I'm guessing, I'm willing to bet that somewhere in one of those manuals that I was supposed to have read or that I did read and didn't remember, kind of like the instructions on 
when you're setting up your fire truck for a potential fire, smoke in the cockpit or something of that nature on a fighter aircraft, you better know what kind of munitions are under the wing and where is the front cannon? Is it on the left side as you're facing it or the right side or right underneath? And is it a moving turret or is it a fixed cannon? And what kind of rounds does it fire? And are they likely to cook off if there is a fire? And oh, does it also have hot brakes? And where's the fuel pod? Because if you don't know these kinds of things, then you find yourself in a disastrous position. And some 30 years later, I still remember some of those things about specific aircraft that I've worked around in my time in the military. But I will never forget that about 18 inches from the nose of a T-37, there's a panel. And if you pop that panel, when you lift it up inside, you find the battery that runs the entire system. And you can quick disconnect that and everything on the aircraft stops working. I will never forget that because that day, I saw that man's flight suit getting caught in the closing canopy then I was terrified that I was going to spend the rest of my life dealing with the consequences of having cut his legs off. Now it might be that the people that you lead are not dealing with issues that dire. It might be they're dealing with issues significantly more dire than that. Literal life and death decisions on a daily basis like in a ER as a paramedic in the street, as a soldier, in law enforcement. Maybe they just make decisions that deal with millions or perhaps billions of dollars, things that could destroy the well-being of a country if they do it wrong, things that could change the outcome of a war if they make the wrong decisions. And when you have to make those kinds of decisions, you better do your homework up front. But see, the challenge for a lot of leaders is they feel like because I'm the leader, because I'm in charge, because I'm responsible, and these are big decisions, it's got to be just like I say it. So you got to lecture them. You got to pound that information into their head. You've got to make sure that they understand every practice and every process and every procedure exactly the way you want it done. And that dictatorial, tyrannical style of leadership, it it has its advantages in the short term in that you get everything exactly the way you want it. But in the long term, you have to ask yourself, are the people that I'm leading actually retaining the information, the understanding, the application of all the things that I'm lecturing them on, all the things that I'm forcing them to know, believe and understand? And if the answer to that question is, well, not so much then the challenge that you run into is people doing what you tell them to do for the moment and then quickly forgetting what you told them to do. They get into the, the field of practice. They get into the crisis of the moment and they forget. When I trained in close quarter combat with some of the people from the Dallas SWAT team, I watched one particular instructor who during a knife disarm or a gun disarm, of course they were all rubber knives and rubber guns or wooden guns. But in that practice of how do you take that away from someone to protect yourself or others, they would usually do that routine 10, 12, 15 times as a drill. And he said what we saw in the field was people would be really good at the motions of the drill. But because we had drilled it 10 or 15 times, they all had the same bad habit 
that they had learned in practice. And that was, they would do the hand manipulation to disarm the person, and then they would hand the weapon back to start the process over again. He said, when that becomes so ingrained in your muscle memory that you get out there in a dangerous situation and you very adeptly take away the other person's weapon, but in a moment of reflexive habit, you hand it back to them. Think of the danger that presents. Think of the aha moment that comes along with that. And so with the guys that I trained with, if they took your toy, your weapon away from you, they would throw it across the room. Literally throw it across the room. And you would have to hustle and go get it. And part of that drill was also the psychology of saying, if I disarm somebody and, they, and I throw the weapon, are they more likely to keep the combat going or to fetch the weapon? And if they fetch the weapon, I have a chance to escape or reposition myself or find safety or take cover. But the mindset of someone, when you take something away from them and then throw it somewhere, the mindset of what they do next is a study in psychology all on its own. But see, it's, it's about awareness. It's about discovery. It's not just about the lecture of the process, the procedures, the policies, the practices. I mean, yes, you have to learn those things. And there's a right way and a wrong way to do most things. In fact, usually there's more than one right way and multiplicity of wrong ways. There's a whole lot of ways to mess something up. I believe it was Thomas Edison who said, I didn't fail 10,000 times at making a light bulb. I discovered 10,000 other things along the way to making a light bulb. That's a difference in mindset. But the idea of discovery, the idea of revelation and awareness, when those things reveal themselves to you and you take ownership of them, you tend to hold on to them longer. See, a great leader doesn't force people just to follow a policy, just because I said so. That's not great leadership. Great leadership is allowing people to examine the process, to see how things work, to walk through the procedures and the processes themselves, and sometimes even to give them the leeway, believe it or not, to discover a better way. Because if they discover a better way, everybody wins. And when they discover a better way, they'll never forget it. Now you can teach, you can lecture, you can force someone to comply, to follow the orders, so to speak, to do it your way. But when you can allow them the room to make a couple of mistakes, to learn along the way, to realize, well, I tried that, that didn't work. I tried that and that didn't work. I tried their ideas and wow, that was a disaster. What if, what if I tried to read the instructions? What if I asked the boss, the leader, how would you do this? Well, sometimes the discovery is right there that the boss or the leader actually has some pretty good ideas. We came home yesterday to find that the inside of our house was 91 degrees. We have a puppy with a very thick fur coat. I'm sure she was much more uncomfortable in that 91 degrees than I was. But I also know that I got a problem to solve. And there's a whole litany of potential problems within that problem. My problem is it's hot in my house. So I did what I think a lot of people these days do. I started with the text string to some people who are older and wiser than me who've owned their own homes longer than I have and 
said, hey, here's what happened. Here's the circumstances. Here's the situation. Here's the symptoms as I see them. Here's what I've done already. What do you think? And I got about 50 answers. And if you look at the 50 answers that I got between social media and my text string, about 90% of them point to one thing. Now, if I just picked up the phone instantly and called an AC repair person, who knows what I would have got? Perhaps somebody with no integrity would be like, oh, your unit is outdated. You need to spend five grand to have it fixed. Possible. It's also possible that I would have got somebody with integrity who would have said, well, for a couple hundred dollars, we can get this back up and, and have your house by 60 degrees by the time you go to bed. But what I found was three people who said, the part you need is about 30 bucks based on the symptoms you've described. If you'll go buy it, I'll come put it in. Two of those are certified electricians. One of those is a guy who's managed properties for his family for a decade or so. Kind of been around the block in these things a couple of times. And I thought to myself, that's a, that's a pretty good use of time to ask the question. But I've discovered now a whole lot more about ACs and how they work and compressor units and how they work and capacitors and what they do than I knew 24 hours ago. Because 24 hours ago, mine worked fine and I didn't care. I'd never been to AC school. It wasn't something I studied. I wasn't paying much attention to it. I set the thermostat, I turn the on switch, and I wait. If it gets cool, I'm happy. If it doesn't, I'm frustrated. But now I know more than I didn't know. See, the, the challenge for most of us is we get caught in that tunnel vision of life. We, we ask, what do I have to do? Not what could I do? Not what would be beneficial, but what do I have to do? And then we limit ourselves to what I have to do. And often that has to do with our job, our career, our paycheck. And if I don't have to do it, then why would I bother learning it? And if I don't have to do it, then why would I ask anybody questions about it? If we want to grow as individuals, we've got to be willing to discover new things, become aware of things that many would look at and say, well, that's not even important to you. Why do you care? But as leaders, we need to leave the room for people, leave the space for people, leave the opportunity for people to discover on their own. Because just like knowing that there are things with an AC that break down in sequential order and that if you don't take care of one, then the next one's probably going to go. Keep the condenser clean, keep the debris away from it, spray it down regularly with water if you can, because it's going to get dust in it. It's going to get dust in it from every direction, especially in Texas in the summer. You got to keep it clean. Well, I've discovered that. Perhaps the hard way. Guess how long I will remember that. For as long as I can remember my own name, I will remember that. Lesson learned. You could have lectured me on it. As a homeowner, it wasn't in the manual. I don't, I don't remember seeing that. As a renter, I think I remember seeing that a couple of times that, hey, make sure you keep the, the coils clean. But I also know they sent somebody out every winter and every spring to make sure that the system was maintained properly. Check the Freon levels. Make sure I put the proper filters in it, et cetera, et cetera. And they would scold me if I didn't. But see, that was the lecture way of learning it. I only remembered it as long as I had to to complete the task. Any of this sounding familiar to you as a leader? 
You ever feel like you've lectured somebody on the same thing a dozen times and they're forgetting it or they're not caring or they just don't do it? Maybe you haven't left them room to learn. Because usually that room left to learn also includes some mistakes. And sometimes our failures are our greatest lessons. We learn more when we screw something up than we do when we're lectured on it a thousand times. When we're lectured, we tend to do what we have to do to get past the lecture. When we discover, we tend to own that kind of discovery, that awareness, that lesson. Not just from a memory standpoint, but when we discover a new way, a better way, a new practice, a new relationship building technique. When we discover something that, in all honesty, many of my discoveries are not brand new. This studio is also my library. It is filled with books. And I can tell you over the last 30 years that I've been studying leadership and studying people and studying communication, there are a lot of things in my journal that when I wrote them down, they're circled and starred and, and arrows pointing from every direction. Like that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I just discovered X, Y, and Z. And I feel like I got to go tell the whole world about it. And then a couple of years later, I read it in some book that's 40 years older than me. And I realized... There's really nothing new under the sun. It's not like these ideas and this information is brand new. Somebody probably lectured me on it at some point and I didn't get it from the lecture, but I, I got it from the experience. Discovery and awareness are some of the best teachers in the world. The lessons that you own that way, you own. You don't just learn them, you own them. Sometimes those ideas come to you in your own phraseology, in your own voice, in your own internal way of saying it. But they're not new to the universe. They're not new to society or cultures. The same ideas. They've been around for a long time. Usually, the ones that work, <laughs> they have the greatest longevity. So when you make a new discovery about a new way of doing things, a new policy, a new procedure, a new relationship style, when you make that discovery, you may find that you're not the only one that figured that out. In fact, there was somebody else who figured it out and just said it a little differently back when they figured it out. I love to listen to things like Zig Ziglar, contrasted with Dale Carnegie. Uh, they were only contemporaries for a short time. Dale Carnegie actually was in his heyday at the turn of the century, so he was probably near the end of his life when Zig Ziglar came to his fame. Zig Ziglar is now gone, but John Maxwell and Brian Tracy have filled that gap. Jim Rohn is gone, but others have filled that rap. And as you look at their teachings, you can follow some of... Dale Carnegie's teachings all the way back to Emil Koo. They didn't agree. They grew up together in the 1890s. They didn't agree on everything. But some of the things that they agreed on will profoundly change your life. And here's the irony. If you look close enough, you'll see that teachers today are throwing quotes out there with their name attached to them that are the same ideas that Emil Koo and Robert Schuller, and W. Clement Stone, and Jack Canfield, and Mark Victor Hansen have been teaching for decades. Are they new ideas? Well, no, because some of those ideas on personal development and leadership, those are as old as human nature. It's a new way of experiencing it. It's a new discovery to the individual who said, bing, the light is on. I get it now. Here's one for you. Speak in the terms of the other person's interest. 
Oh, what does that mean? Well, John Maxwell says, see everyone as a 10. Are those the same idea? Well, they are when you realize that the only way that you can give someone else the focus of seeing them in their best light is when you get to know them well enough to speak about what's important to them. Yep. Dale Carnegie also said, when you talk about those things that you're passionate about, the things that you've actually lived through, you never forget your lines. I teach that as part of Story Power Masterclass. If you're going to be a leader, work from your own stories. Why? Because you own that information. You lived through it. That's your story. That's your experience. Now, if you can articulate that well in such a way that other people go, oh, yeah, I remember a moment very much like that in my life. It was a tragic moment, but man, I learned my lesson from that. That's going to be an important way to teach because it's not a lecture, but it's a demonstration that allows them to go, been there, done that, holy cow, I need to make that more important in my life. It's nothing new under the sun, but there's something new every time you discover and become aware of a lesson that maybe someone had lectured you on, maybe you read it in a book, maybe somebody even made you do it before, but you didn't own it because you felt like you, you had to. We do what we have to do. We continue to do what we learn to do, and we learn to do most often through discovery and awareness. If you want to be a great leader, give the people around you space. Give them room to make mistakes. Give them room to learn on their own. Maybe you guide them a little bit. Maybe you kind of coach them with a couple of questions and ask them things that will lead them to discover. But when you let them discover rather than lecture them, they will learn a whole lot faster and they will apply those principles and practices and processes for a lot greater length of time. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast, where Tell It Like It Is TV. Have a blessed day. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom. that I was praying, God, you know, he just needs this thing broken in his life. He's become involved in that class. And there's real spiritual change and real physical change happening in this guy's life. Today on Transforming Grace TV. I would succumb to addiction and I would succumb to pornography. And the residual effect of that in my life and my children and my household and my other relationships, mind-boggling. And yet I knew there was a call in my life. And I think that tension is what pulls men apart in the churches, and, and it pulls families apart. It, that, to me, is heartbreaking. My opinion, too, is that uh, the body of Christ has a tendency to crucify our wounded. Transforming Grace TV passionately reveals hope in broken relationships. Stay tuned. Experience God's transforming grace.